Lucky you. 36 you best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about Sandy. golf. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> Billy Regan back out again. How are you? How was your weekend? Good, Bobby Williams. And I'm happy to see below both of us here, Mr. Mike Durkin, one of my favorite human beings. <laughs> Mike Durkin, how are you? Uh, all's good, boys. For the listeners who don't know you, Mike is an assistant pro at Wingfoot for how many years? I'm pushing 30. Uh, wow. You know, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. but So like 1993 or so when you hired or four? So my, uh, I, my first year was 1993. That's the first year I worked at Wingfoot. And um, so we came, it, we came in together, basically. I, I remember it clear as day only because of this, because the, the big tree on 10 East went down in December of 92. So my first year there was the first year that that tree was gone. And I just remember, you know, I would stand and I was working in the bag room and I would stand in the bag drop and everyone who came in would just be like you know oh the tree is gone or like or they'd get out of the car and be like something's different and i'd be yeah. like oh yeah there used to be a big tree over there you know? yeah and then kind of uh, a big tree yeah and i remember i remember it clear as day like it was yesterday it was i think it was mrs kellenberger and she gets back and she gets out of the car and she looks around and the tree is gone and she just, I could tell she's panicked. And I go over to her and I look at her and I was like, what's wrong? And she's like, I feel violated. So, <laughs> so I'm standing there and I'm like, man, these people really like their trees, you know, <laughs> because it was, and then you'd go in the pro shop and they had pieces of the tree for sale. Like Tom was selling pieces of the tree. And I was like, oh, they really like their trees around here. I was like, I better get used to this place I'm working at. So I was like, I go into the shop and I look at the book, you know, and it's Douglas LaRue's book. The people, the golf, the friendly trees, you know. So I read the book and it's like, oh, okay. And you get to the back and the last 40 pages of the book are all just trees, 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 trees. So, you know, I was like, oh, these people really like their trees. <laughs> Probably. This was before the before the onslaught of taking down. And then trees. you fast forward, fast forward six years. Six years later, they cut down every tree in, in Westchester. Place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was 1993. Evolution. Who hired you? So, well, I went to high school with a uh, guy named Peter Gardella, who um, worked here. He was Jim Noletti. I think or he was his nephew. Jim Noletti was the manager. Yeah. So Pete was his nephew and Pete, he got Pete a job. Um, so we went to high school together and uh, I went to college in 1990 and Pete went to Concordia, which is where we grew up in, in Bronxville, East Chester area. And uh, he didn't, he never went away to college. So he, he was working here while he went to Concordia. So he had like a four year head start on me. But, um, you know, I'd come home in the summers from college 
and he would say, oh, come on over to Wingfoot and play. And, uh, you know, he loved golf, that kid. Um, and he probably worked here for about, I'd say, 10 years from like the late 80s to the late 90s. But he's the one that got me in here. Really nice. And that was so, under Tom, right? Under Tom Neoporti was the head pro then? Yeah, definitely Tom. So Tom yeah. was, uh, you know, Tom was probably still in his prime at that point. So it was... We'll talk but about I, I mean, I remember when I started, it was basically Jamie at 40 ran everything. Yep. So I remember I came in and Jay was like, hey, you know, you want to work? It was like a two minute thing. Like, okay. <laughs> and that's where I started. I started in the bag room. And so, then moved into club repair. Well, like when I started, Mo was here that Tom at one point showed me his contract that he had when he got hired and I read it and you know one of the clauses in there was like you always had to have a qualified club repair you know tactician on staff you you know it was like written out and I think it was so that Tom would keep Mo when he took the job it was like you know this guaranteed right. that Mo had a job so um, but Mo was, you know, at that point, uh, he was, he was 80 years old and it was also about the point where, uh, you know, like there were no more wood clubs, like they were starting to be phased out. So, um, you know, Mo's kind of services at that point were not needed anymore. And, uh, but I did, you know, in my early years, I had to fix clubs, you know, we had a, uh, there was a guy in Ride, uh, Larry Antonazzi, yep. at dot. White Dot Golf Shop. Yep. He was a crazy old Italian guy, and I used to go over there, and he'd fix clubs. And, uh, you know, but then I got sick of going over there, and then I got sick of sending stuff out, so I started fixing clubs myself, and I learned a little bit on the, learned a little bit from Mo, learned a little bit on my own, and just had a necessity for the most part. But I will say when when Mo was here early on, there were still some guys using persimmon clubs and, uh, you know, Mo had all those skills. Like he could re-whip and reattach and he could, re, you know, he- Because there heyday, was some kind of twine, right? That's the little, uh, it was like a little fine sort of uh, wire that you yeah. wrap around the bottom. And now you use a little plastic ferrule, but- um, you know, Mo was able to tie all those things up and he was able to, you know, he could do the sole plates and replace them. And, you know, in his heyday, he could even, you know, refinish a wood club, which was, took a lot of work and a lot of talent. Or in the At case the end, of Bob Harmon, he, he, he bent his 56 degree wedge about 63 or 64 degrees. Uh, what didn't we find that out from one of the Harmon boys? They they found Claude's wedge that he won the Masters, right? It's like 66 degrees or 70 and degrees. He or something. here in the 1959 U.S. Open and got it up and down from everywhere. And uh, Dickie took it to the Lyloff machine. That's what Billy taught me. You use those all day long, right, Mike? And he checked yep. it out. It was like, he says, well, maybe Dave Pels didn't invent the uh, lob wedge. <laughs> I remember the Moe's Pros was in 1988. So it was five years after his retirement. Um, but, you know, 
we, I got along great with him because he would basically get here really early in the morning and he left at 11.30. Like as soon as he could get lunch, he would get his lunch and leave. So I would basically show up at 10 and I only had to deal with him for an hour and uh, which was fine. But he was, you know, he wasn't, um, he wasn't the easiest to work with because he was, he was a stickler and he was, he was kind of tough on you. Um, you know, I used to remember he, I'd come in and he'd yell at me because everything was dirty and like, you know, this guy's head cover was missing and, you know, but, um, but he was a perfectionist. But now that I think back on it, I have, I have nothing but the ultimate respect for the man because I mean, to last, I, like I said, I'm almost here 30 years. I feel like I've been here forever. He was there 70 years. I mean, 65, 70 years. Like, it means I got another 50, 45, 50 to go <laughs> yeah. to catch it. But you I'll, you gotta be I'll tell you this story about Mo. When Tom, I got it from Tom. Tom got the job and, you know, I guess at the end of Claude Harmon, Tom, you know, there wasn't much in the pro shop and Tom gets the job and all of a sudden he's, you know, having all kinds of merchandise delivered and Mo hated the boxes coming in. Like it interfered with his workspace. And, you know, the boxes would get delivered right to the back door of the bag room and Mo would take them and throw them out in the caddy yard. You know, and Tom would be like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and then Tom got all this new merchandise in the pro shop and Mo always had the cigar going. So, you know, Tom closed the door, not to be rude to Mo, but to just keep the cigar smoke from getting on all his brand new merchandise. And Mo got all upset. He was like, yeah, you're trying to close me out, Neoporty, you know, you know, but, and Mo actually quit. He quit. So Tom had been there about a week and Mo was like, I quit. And he went up to Saratoga and, you know, a couple members had to go up there and talk to him and bring him back. And, uh, you know, it was very contentious at the beginning. But I said to Tom, I was like, Tom, look, the guy had been there 50 years, right? Like that was 1978. 50 years he'd already been working there. And all of a sudden he gets a new boss and, uh, but they men, they, they got over it and they actually became like best friends. So. You think about Mo's tenure. He started the year before Bobby Jones won the first open held at Wingfoot, right? He wanted. He asked me, so I used to go out and play at night. I said, he said, Oh, you go play last night, junior. And I'd say, yeah. And he'd be like, what'd you hit into 18? He meant 18 West. And I said, oh, I hit a six iron at 175 yards. And he'd be like, Bobby Jones flipped a little sandwich in there from 70 yards, 1929 <laughs> with a gutta percha ball. It's like, you're nothing, Junior. <laughs> no, he said, he told me Bobby Jones drove it over the hill in the 29 open. Wow. He wasn't playing the back tee. Well, I don't know. I got that from Mo directly. Uh, but I used to ask him about it. He said it was like, you know, it was burned out, a little dry, but yeah. 
Bobby Jones was a long hitter. I wasn't there for the Colin Montgomery thing, but um, so I remember when, when, so when the last day of the 2006 US Open, I was out on, I was trying to watch on the back of the West, but it was so crowded out there. Couldn't get near those guys. And I went in the bag room and they, so the pro shop was the, um, was cordoned off. And, uh, but we could get in the back door of the bag room and they built like a temporary wall and, and the pro shop was where they went to sign their cards. And I remember uh, Jeff Ogilvie played with um, Ian Poulter and they went in and I was standing in the back and Ian Poulter and Jeff Ogilvie signed their card in the pro shop. And, you know, I think Ogilvie was like, all right, well, you know, Ian Poulter said to him, like, you got a chance, like you got a chance. And, he, and Ogilvie was like, no, nah, he's just going to par this hole. And then I'm, you know, I'll congratulate him. And then, you know, Phil butchered the hole and they shuffled Ogilvy out of there right away, you know, and then I left because I didn't want to see what was going on, but yeah. I couldn't yeah, see, they, I could hear. They felt like but, dominoes in the end there. Mickelson, Montgomery, a couple guys had, had some serious chances the last three or four holes of that open. And yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was awful. But there's, I, you know, Jim Furyk came back for one of the outings um, and he was, you know, they, he got hired by the group to come and, you know, play a couple holes with the group. And then at their post round, he was speaking and, you know, he looked back out over Wingfoot. He was on a terrace and he was like, you know, he, he regretted his 2006 U.S. Open because he had a really good chance. He three-putted 15. Um, yep. You know, never should have done that. And then he butchered 18. Otherwise, he would have won. Uh, but, you know, so be it. That's history. Yeah. That was but I remember uh, the other thing I remember, you know, so the 97 PGA was by far, like, for me, the best event. Um because I just think, I think back, like we had Nicholas played and uh, Watson and Ray Floyd. And like, there were all these great players from the seventies and the sixties even that were here playing. And in the middle, you had like Greg Norman and, and Nick Faldo and Davis, of course. And then the young guy, like Tiger won the masters in 97. Um, so if you look back at that field, that 97 PGA, they had the best, they had by far the best field. And um, like, it was the height of Tiger mania, like, you know, so like, it was cool to be here for that. But I don't think we'll ever have a field that'll match that one to have Nicholas. And yeah, Nicholas was still playing then and Tom Watson and, uh, you know, um, there were others, you know. You'll certainly uh, never get another shot with a rainbow in it like that yeah and then also in the 97 pga we actually still were doing the we were doing the bag room um so like some of the pros actually like leave their bags in the bag room and they all kind of came back there at least once in a while like they didn't all leave their bags but like if they went to get lunch or if they were you know taking a break or something they would 
they would leave their bags with us and then come back. So, you know, we got a lot more interaction, you know, than we do now. Um, like we did the range this last one in 2020 and, you know, you got to see them a little bit, but, you know, there was a little more interaction in 97. And the other thing was, I remember uh, in the bag room, there was this guy, he was kind of like a gypsy guy who traveled with the tour and he set up a massage table and he had about four or five pros that would come in and get, you know, worked on. Um, including there were two that were there all the time, Lee Jansen and Payne Stewart. And I just remember Payne Stewart, he was in there the whole time. Um, and, you know, hanging out, yeah. you know. He had a chronic problem. So Mike, did you, were you born with the temperament that you have, which is necessary to run the tournaments that you run at a club like this? Or did you have to learn that? I know people have to drive you crazy where you get wait lists. You don't have enough on the wait as list. A, too uh, many on the wait list. So as a tournament guy, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I am. And it's probably not the best thing. Maybe it is. I don't know, but I'm, I'm kind of a fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. Like, and as, as a tournament guy, you probably should be more of a stickler. Um, you should be more, you know, detail, oriented and a little more organized than I am. I'm just like kind of, okay, let's just wing it. Um, and maybe it works here. Uh, I don't know, but I just feel like it's not, you know, um, I've learned a couple things. Number one, you just treat everybody the same. That's, that's gotta be number one. And then, uh, you know, you gotta, you just gotta be fair. I don't lose sleep over it anymore. Um, but I remember like, you know, when we first started with the member guest and having to wait list guys and tell them they're not in and I, you know, I was doing it. And, you know, I mean, I wait listed Rick Patino like every year. And, you know, I would have to call him up and be like, hey, Rick, you know, you're not in. And, you know, he was, he's a great guy now, but, you know, if back then he was coaching Louisville and, you know, very busy guy and, you know, it wasn't always easy. I, I waitlisted Rob Manfred every year and he's the commissioner of baseball and everyone knows I love baseball. And then I, you know, I'd be like, I'm never going to get tickets. So, <laughs> but, but I did it because I just followed the letter of the law. Like, you know, I didn't care if you, you know, well, you're stuck. You were the commissioner of MLB or if you were, you know, Whoever you were, I just followed the rules, and that's who got that's who got out. That's who got waitlisted. So that's that's my only that's my only thing there. And then uh, you know but the you, rest of it. it uh, I say you, with every tournament, there's it's going to end. There's going to be a winner, and you know the rest of it. You just do your best. But you handle it so well. I mean, I you know I people are obviously disappointed and on you know, depending on their mood or their personality, you know, some, some take disappointment better than others to put it mildly. So that's yeah. a tough position. And, you know, I know the membership every year at these tournaments, the ones that I do get in, there's nothing but appreciation for the work you do there. Well, thank you for saying that. So it's, it's, uh, 
you know, I know how it is. I mean, I, I play in events myself and, you know, I was in a playoff. I've been, been in playoffs for the New York state open and, you know, you're on the tee and there's six other guys and you're trying to play for one or two spots or whatever. And, and you're nervous as all hell. And you're afraid you're going to make a mistake. And like, you know, you just want to be real clear and real calm and, you know, straightforward and make sure nobody makes a big mistake. Right. And just let it go. Um, but, you know, it's not always easy. That's a common denominator, whether it's a member member at Wingfoot's the New York State opener, it's the, uh, you know, the playoff in one of the PGA events. It seems to me the common denominator. Everyone is nervous. Everyone is nervous. I have to tell myself that the nibs for, you know, Steve Carlucci or, uh, you know, Paul Benson is like being in a playoff for the U.S. Open for, you know, Jeff Ogilvie or Phil Mickelson. Like, it's 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 their U.S. Open. So, you know, Can you, you imagine remember. Paul Benson in a playoff on uh, TV when the analytics on that swing? Yeah. Well, I remember oh, the year he's, oh, he's got a little – He's got a little better. He's a little straighter now. Like we, oh, he's terrific. Playoff. That one, that one year he was hitting. He hit the green like every time, but he hit it out over the parking lot on yeah. ten and then bring it back in. Yeah, no, he's amazing. It was automatic. Yeah, he's a lot of fun to play with too. He's a, he's a, a delightful a, game. If there was anybody patrons following him, they could only be on the right side. There's not enough room. <laughs> to no, exactly. No matter what, right. they they wouldn't allow anybody left. One year, uh, one year, I forget, like Gilmore had the, the bullhorn during the, uh, we were doing a playoff from the Tilly and everyone's standing around and, you know, I think it was, I think it was Mark Johnson who Mark won the Knicks. So he's, you know, and Mark played pro baseball, but I think Mark hit about six inches behind the ball. <laughs> in the Tilly playoff and the ball went about three feet and you could hear a pin drop. Everyone was like, Oh, it yeah. just felt awful for him. And Gilmore's got the bullhorn and he's like, God, it's like Gilmore said something like, oh, don't worry, Mark, you hit the big ball. And like <laughs> he broke it up so that everybody laughed a little bit, but you know, it was, it's, I, it is nerve wracking. I know. Mike, you've been there now with, is it three head pros? Yeah, yeah. Tom, John Busick, and Mike Gilmore. And what's that transition like for you as far as as it applies to your own duties? Is that pretty consistent? Yeah. They just... uh, you know, Busick was very different. Um, and, you know, I got to say, the thing I think about the most is, is there's a big cultural difference so when I first got there, um, like I think about that picture now that's in the pro shop um, with Claude and all his assistants. Uh, and then we have another one that's in there with Tom and all his assistants. So when I first got to Wingfoot, you know, the two assistants were Larry Rents and Richard Hatcher. And uh, they were, I mean, Larry was unbelievable. So as somebody who's working there, you kind of felt like, I didn't feel like I was an assistant. I felt like I was just the guy working there. Um, 
So there was a definite change at that point. Like the assistant pros, even into Tom's time, were like, you know, very heralded. They were very, you know, respected. Um, and nowadays, you know, we have 12 guys working in the shop. They're all assistants, like, you know. Right. They run the gamut. Like some of them can play, some of them are just okay. But, you know, everybody teaches, everybody, we, you know, we take a team approach now. Whereas when I first got there, you know, it was the assistants were like gods and we were just, you know, the guys that did all the work. Um, so I just remember that in my early years, Larry rents to me, you know, I went out when I first got to Wingfoot and I played golf in college. I thought I was okay. And I went out and played with Larry and I was like, oh my guy, God, this guy. He could, you know, he could hit a guy. We went ball. off. So the first time I went to play with him on 10 West, he hits it to like three feet, knocks it in. On 11, he hits like, you know, four iron and then a wedge to like, six feet knocks it in and i'm like okay i'm two down and then i go to 12 west and he bombs it so he finally takes out his driver and i'm like okay and he hits it so far but he hits it way right and i hit it down the middle and i'm like okay i'm, I'm gonna get this guy here <laughs> and his ball he hit it so far he was almost in the fairway on 17 and, you know, I hit my second shot and then I hit my third shot on the green. And it turns out I didn't see Larry because there were so many trees back then. Between. Right. But he hit his second shot from kind of like the, the fairway on 17. He hit a two iron into the right front bunker oh. on 12, <laughs> up over the trees with a two iron. Like and then he takes a little sandwich and flips it up to a foot and he taps it in for a birdie. And I was like, and then he's like, okay. oh, I got to go. And he, and he goes <laughs> and plays 17 and 18. And I was just like, oh my God. My God Thank you crazy. very much. And, you know, and then after him, after he left, then Bruce Zabriskie came in and Bruce was unbelievable how good he was. He never missed a shot. And then the year after that, we had Mike Bruce Allen. Bruce was a kind of a warm and fuzzy guy too, right? Yeah. I like, <laughs> I got along great with Bruce, but he was, he could be, you just had to understand him. Yeah. Well, he said to Hank Malfoy one time, Hank, you know, he goes up to Hank and he says, if you couldn't chip and putt, you wouldn't break 80. <laughs> and I was like, there's oh a better way to he say just, that. He just said that to Hank Melfa, like, and Hank steamed out of the room, like, so mad. Yeah. But then if you got to know Bruce, Bruce was actually complimenting Hank's short game. It was like Bruce saying, hey, Bruce, you got a great short game. Right. It's just, that's, that's, that was Bruce. But um, I got along great with Bruce, but not everybody, not everybody did. But he was, you know, he was, he was an awesome ball striker. Yeah, he interviewed over at Siwanoi after, um, when they were looking for a pro, they ended up hiring Grant Turner, who was excellent. But I, I think Bruce shot maybe a 61. 
in the uh, in one of the rounds he played there. So well, his, his golf knowledge was extremely high because I had managed. I remember taking a lesson from him, and he had taken lessons from Harvey Penick. So not many people had done that and was a right. good player. So he had some of that. You know, maybe he took fifteen minutes, but and maybe he read the red book. But he had that going for him and his confidence in helping people with their swings, right? No, he was he was a great teacher, Bruce. He he was he was spot on. So you were there through the Joey Neaporti years too, then? No, obviously. I got to know Joe, and I Joe is Joe is my great friend. Um, but Joe Joe didn't work here when I was here. Oh. Um, but he, you know, like I said, I got to know him really well just from knowing the Neapolitans. Um, yeah, he's a great so. teacher too, Joey. Joe was, yeah, Joe was great. Um, uh, Joe Allen. was funny. Mike Allen, you, you were going to talk about Mike Allen. I didn't know him that well, and he wasn't at Wingfoot that long. What about him? Nice guy, was, Mike. Yeah, it was, uh, I'll say this. I, the best thing I say about Mike Allen is that he was, he didn't have any golf business scar tissue. Like he came straight from the court. I remember, I remember when we, when we hired him, Tom had a stack of resumes on his desk and we were hiring, you know, and John Neaporti was there and we were looking through the resumes and everyone's, you know, so all of a sudden we get to this one and I'm reading it and I still couldn't believe it. You know, Irish Open, winner, you know. It's just tour event after tour event, like second place, third place, third, you know, like two pages of this. And I, and I said, Tom, hire this guy. <laughs> and he did. So um, he was, he was awesome, awesome player. Just, you know, but I mean, like I said, he had no golf business experience whatsoever. Baggage, like he yeah. came straight from the tour. But I remember one day I said to him, like, Mike, can you stand in the pro shop for 10 minutes? And the phone rings and everybody who works in the golf business goes <laughs> saying, golf shop, Michael speaking, or, you know, you say your name and you know, it was a way to answer the phone. Not this guy picks <laughs> up the phone. Hello. <laughs> yeah, hello. So the guy on the other end goes, who's Is this? It... <laughs> and Mike goes, you called me. Who's this? <laughs> yeah. You know, Mike was that way. I, I there was a guy, Jim Gallagher, who was an old kind of a crusty guy, and he gripped. <laughs> so Mike goes down, and Carrie stepped in. Who was here? He tried to give him lessons for years, and he tried to get him to change his grip, and he wouldn't. And then Mike Allen goes down there and the guy goes like this. He's tripping him like this and he's blows smother hooks on the range. And he's like, so Mike goes, the first thing we got to do is change your grip. And Jim Gallagher goes, nah, I, don't, I like my grip. I want to keep, keep gripping it like this. And Mike goes, fine. And he just walks away. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, if you don't want to get better, I'm leaving. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to waste my time, but <laughs> he was, he was, he was unique. He was great though. He was, he was great to hang out with and, uh, you know, hanging out in the bag room. He would tell great stories and, you know. So that, that, 
that train of assistants, it's like a farm league for um, the golf business. Yeah, I remember when we hired uh, Frank Benzel after Mike Allen. I was kind of like, you know, I, I, I said to Tom, I was I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed here, you know, like after having Larry and Bruce and Mike Allen, I was like, Frank Benzel, you know, kid from White Plains, like, but then Frank, Frank was awesome. Yeah. You know, he, he could, I mean, he played as well as any of them. And, and Carrie and Grant Sturgeon. I mean, there's so many. And then Billy come. Van Orman. And then it was just one after another. Yeah. Uh, but that was the deal back then. Like if you were kind of the best guy in the area, you came to Winkfoot and you did a couple of years. That was, that's what I thought the deal was. Right. Um, you know, and we, and then, Music came in, it kind of changed. Like he's the one who started instead of like, we always had two assistants and, you know, there may have been a, a female assistant. There were a couple of years where there weren't. Um, but then, you know, everybody else was kind of just, you either worked in the bag room or pro shop or whatever. And then all of a sudden music came in and then we had like 10 assistants, um, you know, and there were guys all over the place. And, and that's where we all started to do a little bit, you know, take over more tournaments. And, you know, so but I just remember if you go back to that day, like Bruce Zabriskie never opened a box and folded a shirt or, uh, you know, right. they really, they would help us out once in a while, but they didn't really answer the phones. And then, and then you fast forward, we had guys like Mike Ballow and, uh, Adam Renault and, uh, Grant Sturgeon, and they were actually working. Like they yeah, were yeah. actually like pricing shirts and and you it was know all one job answering right? phones and regripping. Yeah, so things changed a lot. I I think back to even not to not to Tom every now and then, like when Jay Jay was in the shop like all the time. And then yeah, Tom, he lived there. Tom would you know sit in his office and pay his bills. That's that's basically you know. That was our core lineup. I would be in the bag room, Jay would be in the pro shop, and Tom would be in his office doing all the accounting. And every now and then, Jay would be like, oh, I got to go. I got to go. You know, I got a meeting or something. And Tom would be like, okay, I'll cover the shop. And Tom would go stand behind the counter and, you know, it would just be like, hey, Mike, do we have any gloves? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's your favorite story? I was like, you, I was like Tom. Tom. What, you have a great story to tell us. I mean, Alicia told us some stories about Tom. You worked for him for so long. Tom, I have a million, but I'll I'll tell you this story. Tom was down when Tom was down in Florida. He didn't play golf that much in the winter, but once in a while he'd go play with a member of Florida. And he gets down there one year, and he had, he didn't have a golf ball in his bag, and. He goes into the shop at say Seminole or something like that. And he goes, I need a sleeve of balls. Like, give me a sleeve of Titleists. And he puts a five dollar bill. And the pro is like, that'll be like $18 <laughs> or whatever. It was like $13. And Tom was like, I thought a sleeve of balls was three bucks. And <laughs> I was like, I was like, you've been a pro and for 20 years paying all those bills like you know, but he had no idea how much a sleeve of balls cost so he had never bought one um, but 
Tom was, uh, you know, he was, he was the best. He used to, at lunch, like I ate lunch with him every day in the grill and Tom would just tell us stories and uh, they were, they were just classic. He played the tour and like, you know, um, yeah, he was, he was on and off and you know, he, he had great stories. Like I remember there was one, he's, he played in Phoenix and the next day he had to drive to Dallas and he's driving with, I want to say the guy's name was Butch, Butch Beard. Yeah. Butch Beard. Yeah, he was Butch Beard and Butch had a stutter. So he would, you know, kind of bounce his words and Tom's knew the road to get to from Phoenix to Dallas. So they have to drive overnight to get there. So they leave it dark and they, Tom says, I'll drive the first half, you drive the second half. So Tom drives halfway and then he wakes Butch Beard up and he says, all right, you take over, I'm gonna go to sleep. And he says, there's a gas station in about an hour and you gotta stop at the gas station and fill up. And Butch is like, okay, and he drives the car and Tom falls asleep. And then they get to this gas station and Tom's asleep. And Butch, all of a sudden, the guy comes out, big, huge guy comes out and he says, can I help you? But, but he stutters. And Butch, he doesn't want to say, fill her up so he just hits the gas peels off down the road and he wakes tom up and says you gotta go back but the guy tom had all kinds of stories like that <laughs> so you're playing pretty well lately i know i've heard the stories the last several years you've been playing well was there any pro that you worked with at wingfoot or elsewhere that kind of helped you bring your game to where it's become now uh, they all helped me a lot. Um, maybe, I, your, the best, maybe your father-in-law. The best one, well, I've learned probably as much from him as anybody else. But um, besides Tom, I'd have to say Tom and I, we talk so much, but he never really, like, we never, you know, he, he'd give me pointers here and there, but I never really worked with him. But I learned a lot from him. But the best lesson I ever got was from Bruce Zabriskie. He, he fixed me, like, you know, Right. But that was a long time ago. That was 1995. Alicia yeah. helps me a lot too. But lately, uh, you know, I don't know. I think we've, what's happened lately, like back then, you really needed to go to a pro to get a lesson. And nowadays, like with TrackMan and YouTube and all the resources, like, you know, everybody, the information's there. You just got to, you, you got to apply it. Sometimes you need a, a second set of eyes, but, um, you know, I've learned from every single one of these guys that's been through. I've learned from Ballo. I've learned from Adam in recent times. And I, you know, um, I've learned from James Ando. I learned from, you know, all, every single one of these guys uh, has taught, has taught me something, you know, um, I'd probably say I have the, the deepest relationship I've had now is probably with Alicia Debos, just, just because she's been here so long. 
We always like to ask, and I'm going to modify the question, Billy. So there's eight par threes at Wingfoot. Forget about three east. That's out. Now there's only it's all, seven. That's taken. That's everybody taken. else took that already. Yeah, everybody else took it. What's the one par three for a large sum of money that you're going to play to make a par or better? You got to make a par or better to win the bet. Which of the other seven par threes at Wingfoot? That's a really good question. It's a really good question. I yeah. have to make a par? Yep. Yeah. We can't make the par. There's no, so. there's no right answer there. I mean, no. um, you know, I don't know. I would I would probably have to go with uh, seven west, I guess, would be maybe. Because uh, 13 is not easy. 13 uh, east. 13 east. And then yeah, uh, ten west I is right out. West. Seventeen west is right out of the out of the running. Yeah, I played ten west, but that used to be my thing because I used to go when I was working the bag room. It's right I there. I used to go right yeah. out the door and play ten. I probably played ten more than any other, any every other hole Wingfoot. So, question where if you had to win a hole, I would go seventeen east because right. seventeen east you just know if you just you know give yourself a putt for par. The other guy's going to make bogey. So, yeah. so, so would you matter. take your would you take Jimmy's approach to seventeen and just put something down in front, and if it runs up, great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy, for this, you know, he told me once when he plays like match play on the East, you know. Jimmy was really upset when they redid the greens on the East. I forget when, the first time. Fazio, you know? Fazio yeah. And he was very upset about 15 East um, because 15 East, remember, used to have a much more severe false front. Yep. And, but he used to say, because if he got in a match play situation, he said, I just got to get this match to 15 East because 15 East, you can win it with a par. Um, and then he said 16 East, you could win it with a par. 17 East, you could win it with a par. And then 18, anything could happen. Uh, but he used to think that 15 East, when it had the, you know, the false front that started, like, you know, it was like halfway into the green. So he didn't get it into that back third. You come um, back down to the water. It would come all the way down. And then you made, it was tough up and down. Um, so he says that's his theory. Now it's easy to get the ball on the green on 15, the new green, and then you can, you know, probably two putt. So it's not as hard a hole as it used to be back in the day. But, what do you think is the yeah. toughest green to putt at Wingfoot? The toughest green to read. Yeah, toughest, toughest green. green to read. Or, you know, read. I think yeah, the toughest two, green. Well, one West is definitely. The, uh, you know, the most, it's the most undulating, difficult green there. But I'd say toughest green to read. Wow. Yeah, because one one's readable. It's just hard to putt it. Yeah, you know what green is tough to read is uh, is eight west. I think that one kind of baffles people. Um, a 15 east nowadays, I think 15 east is not the same green as it used to be, but you know, the putts there kind of go opposite of what you think. Um, but I don't know. There's some of the newer greens are tough, tough to read. Eight, 
yeast is not the same as it used to be, you know. So if you have the scar tissue from back in the day and you remember those old putts, they're not they're, they're not, not there the anymore. Yeah. But they're close. Said, like Gil, Gil did a great job. Yeah. You know, Gil did a great job of trying to put them back the way they were, but you know, they're they're not they're not those those five or six greens on the east are not not the same. So you get a Tucson, you're going out tomorrow, beautiful day. And you get your choice of one guy to play with, and here's your choices: Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, or Ben Hogan. Who are you going to choose as the other guy to play with you that 18 holes? Wow. Depends if you're playing for money or not, right? <laughs> I think I would say Arnold, because um, I'd say Jack and Tiger are still around, so maybe I, would, you know, they're still alive. Although I would, you know, Tom played with Ben Hogan and Tom told me how tough Ben was, that he's not very talkative. So I don't know that he'd be open. So that's by default leaves Arnie, I guess. And Arnie had great, great stories too. And, you know. Arnie could be your friend. Uh, yeah, I'll go with Arnie. friends with Hogan and Hogan was mean to him. Tom, Tom played with Hogan in the final round of the PGA one year told me the story he said he said like I tried to talk to him and he, he was basically like he wouldn't Tom says Ben hits a shot and Tom goes nice shot Ben you know what would you know Tom, about a nice shot Ben <laughs> says nothing and then so after it's three holes of this Tom says he's hitting everything pure and Tom's just like nice shot and then finally on the fourth hole Ben says Tom I'll tell you when I hit a nice shot <laughs> and Tom said, all right. And he just kept his mouth shut the rest of the time. And then on 17, he hasn't talked to him now for two hours. On 17, Ben Hogan hits one just perfect. And it almost goes in a hole. And he turns to Tom and he says, There, that was a nice shot. And that was all that's all he ever said to him. He said, I'll tell you when. And then he told him when. But I can see Tom, like, hey, nice shot, Ben. <laughs> nice shot, Ben. You got a favorite uh, movie? Uh, it's it's kind of a cop out, but when they make Caddyshack, as somebody who's worked in this business for thirty years, like they absolutely nailed it. Like, you know, you, to think that that movie was forty years ago, you know, and I'm I'm sitting in the locker room at Winthrop right now, and. You know, where the guy, where Judge Smales walks in and he's like, you know, the two guys are there playing cards and he goes, don't you people have homes? You know, <laughs> yeah. like that is so spot on. It's, it's still true. So I was in here, I went in there to try and hook up the Zoom in the card room and there's somebody in there just hanging out on a Monday in March, you know, and I'm like, don't you people have homes? And then, <laughs> yeah, you know, homes and to then, go to? be on the podcast come on and then the other the other one is uh like i said this to gilmore like you know when when danny noonan is going to grab uh, bag and chevy comes up to him and he's like hey you know give me the driver and he's like you know he's got judge smale's bag because he made a business decision and i said that's just like chris lewis you know <laughs> yeah if, 
because Chris Lewis has, you know, Steve Mara or Charlie Schoner or, you know, Bridget Rooney, like, you know, it's like if they all three played together, he's, you know, who's going to win out, you know? So that Bridget. still happens to this day. It's always Bridget. Yes. Get it. And we no, look I forward loved it. to Thanks. a great season ahead. Another great season at Wingfoot right around the corner. Yep. Hundred, hundred, hundred and first year, actually. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I hope so you've been you've been here for almost a third of them. Well, you make it look simple, Mike, and your attitude toward Wingfoot each and every year. You've been there each and every day, each and every tournament that you interact with a lot of lunkheads. You do a great job and it goes without saying that it's so appreciative and keep it up because you're you 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 are you're the you're replaceable. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And this has been great. Thanks for joining Casper, us today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show Ratter. and hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified. Movie classics. New episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.